From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. And there's also kind of this vague apocalyptic narrative included in it. More than once I heard people saying, oh, well, we'll all be eating this someday. On today's show, we talk with Blue Delaquante and Soleil Ho, authors of Meal, a graphic novel about food, culture, love, and entomophagy. And we explore research on food pairing and flavor networks with Dr. Yang Yael Ong. He goes by YY. He's a professor of informatics and computing at Indiana University and co-creator of a fascinating map of flavor networks. We have a food poem from Yaley Kamara, plus recipes from Jackie B. Howard and Susan Mintert. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Eats is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Renee Reed couldn't be here today, so I'll be the voice of Earth Eats News this week. After a majority Senate vote, Tom Vilsack is now reprising the role of U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports that Vilsack has a new challenge as he enters the position. Vilsack said during a news conference that one of his biggest priorities is responding to the pandemic. One focus point is rural health care. There's a lack of health insurance, uh, higher levels of uninsured populations in rural places, and a lack of access to facilities. And that's why it's incredibly important uh, for the Department of Agriculture to do what it can uh, to expand access to health care uh, facilities. Vilsack says the USDA is investing in programs like the Distance Learning and Telemedicine Program to support rural areas. He announced $42 million is being added to that program. About half of that is CARES money. The USDA estimates that will improve health care and education for 5 million rural residents. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. Kroger Food Stores announced last month that it will close two Seattle stores in response to the city's new hazard pay mandate for grocery workers. The legislation, which passed unanimously, requires large grocery chains to pay an additional $4 per hour for at least the next four months. Kroger also decided just weeks earlier to close two stores in Long Beach, California, for the same reason— although all four stores were described by the company as, quote, underperforming. Major grocery chains have seen increased sales and record profits as a result of the pandemic. A recent report from the Brookings Institute found that Kroger's profits were up 90 percent for the first two quarters of 2020, compared to the same period in 2019. According to the Washington Post, Kroger says it has spent an extra $1.5 billion dollars for worker compensation and additional safety measures during the pandemic. 
Most of its stores have not paid an additional hazard pay since May. Additionally, the grocery giant argues that it would not be able to afford the increased labor costs at those stores due to the small profit margins that most grocery stores operate on. Mark Perone, president of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, called Kroger's decision to close the stores, quote, cold-hearted. He and others accuse the company of trying to intimidate other cities and elected officials that may be considering mandating hazard pay. Teresa Mosqueda, the Seattle City Council member who sponsored the bill, said on Twitter that the closures were, quote, harmful to public health and retaliatory. Thanks to Toby Foster and Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine for those reports. For Earth Eats News, I'm Kate Young. My strongest food memories come from tasting fruit. In particular, red and black raspberries from my grandmother's garden. For poet Yaley Kamara, one fruit stands out in her memory, one that connects her to the homeland of her family. Here's Yaley with a poem about Malambo fruit. My name is Yaley Kamara. Eating Malambo fruit in Freetown, 1989. In Sierra Leone, the Saba Senegalensis is called the Malombo fruit. My uncle Sonny cupped the Malombo fruit in his palms. Between his ebony hands, it looked like a tired orange that had rolled on an unpaved road for 1,000 years. He must have noticed me trying to peel the fruit, which is the first mistake anyone makes when they have never eaten it before. He squeezed it until a little bit of it fell out of itself, like a pulpy lava bullet onto my grandmother's floor. I loosened a slippery knot of its tangy flesh and placed it in my mouth. Malombo was a flavor before English. Honeyed and tart, it slid across my tongue like a marble in a pinball machine. A stranger to fruits with pits, that which I could not chew, I pushed to the back of my throat. The pit swam in my throat like a tourist. My uncle laughed at me, puckered lips and bulging eyes. He told me not to worry told me that before I had the chance to die or become a giant Malombo pit, it would pass eventually through me. On an early morning phone call from Oakland, my sister still says that this is her story, that her throat was where the pit lodged itself, and that Uncle Sonny had not laughed and Grandmother's floor was the dirt outside, that it never happened to me, though I know it so well, the breathlessness of a thing being wedged in a place it does not belong. We cannot agree. The moment must be hers or mine. When we asked our mother who this keepsake belonged to, she split the ghost fruit between us. We tussle over a pit. We'd both rather choke than have no story at all. That was poet Yeli Kamara reading Eating Malumbo Fruit in Freetown, 1989, from her chapbook, When the Living Sing, published by Ledgemill Press in 2017. Find links to more of Yaley's work on our website, eartheats.org.
Next, we have a fascinating story from back when Alex Chambers was a producer on the show and when Maddie Chera and Lee Bush were still at the IU Food Institute interviewing scholars for Earth Eats. Hey, Alex. So I've got a story for you. It's about food and flavors and how to put those together. So food pairings? Yeah. And it's also about data, how we collect data about what we like to eat. It's kind of a cautionary tale. So you're saying it's a food pairing parable? You could say that. It starts with an image. Let's have it. So I've got this graphic in front of me, and it looks a little like the map of your airline's flight routes in the back of the in-flight magazine. But instead of the big hubs being Atlanta and Chicago, they're roast beef, black tea, and beer. And there's no Pacific Northwest or Florida. Instead of regions of the country, there are fruits, vegetables, alcoholic beverages, spices, meats. It's kind of beautiful. Each category of food has a different color. And there are these circles of different sizes that show how popular each ingredient is. And they're connected by lines of different thicknesses. Those lines are the key, what the graphic is about. But before I get to that, I want to say that the researchers who created this graphic used it to give us new insights into how global cuisines relate to each other. And don't relate. Insights that have been written up in the Washington Post and Scientific American and even NPR and which may not be accurate at all. So how did all this get started? I was just sitting in the same office with one of my colleagues, and he's really interested in food. This is YY On, one of the researchers. I'm an assistant professor at Department of Informatics. At Indiana University. He spoke with Earth Eats producers Lee Bush. I'm Lee. And Maddie Chara. And I'm Maddie. Last December. So... His office mate went to some seminar by colleagues, a physics physicist colleague, and this colleague studies like food science in a like physics way. And he comes back to the office after this seminar and starts telling YY about the food pairing hypothesis. The idea is basically, okay, if you have two food ingredients that share some flavor compounds, if you mix them, they'll taste better. The idea's gotten a lot of traction lately. Chefs are using it to come up with new dishes, and there's even a website, foodpairing.com, where, if you subscribe, you can use their scientific method to identify which foods and drinks go well together. My friend, my office mate, when he heard about that idea, he immediately realized that it's about networks, because you're talking about ingredients, sharing compounds, uh-huh. so you're making connections between ingredients. So that's essentially network. Whoa. So that's how your Flavor Network project was born, basically. Yeah. So right after this seminar, he apparently rushed to the library, sit there for a week, typed a whole book that lists like flavor compound and ingredients. And that's what the graphic is all about. Each of the ingredients is represented by a circle. The size of the circle shows how common the ingredient is. Ingredients are linked up with other ingredients by lines of different thicknesses that show how many flavor compounds those ingredients share. You might not be surprised that beef and pork share a lot of flavor compounds. But it's interesting to note that garlic, which is super popular, hardly shares flavors with any other ingredients, whereas beer, while not popular as an ingredient, seems to be at the center of everything flavor-wise. Anyway, YY and Sebastian didn't want to just stop at this beautiful rendition of the Flavor Network. 
They wanted to test the flavor pairing hypothesis itself. Do dishes taste better when their ingredients share flavor compounds? People made these nice、uh, dishes and nice combinations, new combinations of food, using this、uh, food pairing hypothesis. But nobody really kind of systematically、uh, studied that. To answer, you need to know what people actually cook. I was kind of chatting in the office, and I thought that maybe we can use recipes to kind of test the hypothesis. And even though immediately after Sebastian heard about the flavor hypothesis, he apparently rushed to the library, typed a whole book. It's not like they were going to type out thousands of cookbooks worth of recipes. They got their data the way most of us do when we need to look something up. They went online. We use two recipe databases, which are kind of in English and fairly large. These are Epicurious.com and one of my favorites. Yeah, <laughs> Allrecipes.com. But then these are all American websites.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I choose chose、uh, one Korean recipe website called Menupan.com. And how many recipes did that end up being? It's about. Fifty-six thousand recipes total, and they grouped the recipes into geographically distinct cuisines: North American, Western European, Southern European, Latin American, and East Asian, based on how they were tagged on the website. So, what were some of the things that came out of this project? What did you find? Well, I, I think the most interesting thing was、uh, there is a huge variance across culture. So. I mean, the initial idea was: can we check? Can we test this hypothesis of food pairing? Right.、Mm-hmm. That flavor compounds、yeah. um, make ingredient combinations、mm-hmm. uh, that will appear more frequently in recipes because they share similar flavors. Right. So, they crunched some numbers. Wow, Alex, is that actually the sound of numbers being crunched? No, that's chips. I figure they've got to munch on something while they do their math. Oh, well, what did they find? Did the theory hold? It seems to hold in North American and Western European website、uh, recipes. Interesting. But get ready for the it. The opposite holds for like East Asian recipes. In other words, in North American and Western European recipes, the more flavor compounds are shared by two ingredients, the more likely they appear together in recipes. But in East Asian cuisine, the more flavor compounds two ingredients share, the less likely they're used together. This is the part where I started to get excited. Data science was revealing something about cultural practice that we hadn't been able to see because it needed to be quantified first. And I'm not the only one who found this exciting. This is the result that made its way into the magazines and newspapers, including the MIT Technology Review, which says that these recipe networks give the lie to the idea that ingredients that share flavors taste better together. But do they? It turns out, after all that fanfare, that's not quite what the report says. I'll explain after the break.
So we left off with the conclusion that different cuisines approach taste in really different ways. Some like to overlap and blend flavors, while others like to contrast them. If you care about making things taste good, this is worth knowing. But if you're really curious, you start to look at what the ingredients are, and things suddenly get a lot murkier. The thing is, these conclusions are based on the prevalence of six characteristic ingredients in each of the cuisines. In East Asian, it's soy sauce, scallion, sesame oil, rice, ginger, and soybean. Not too surprising, right? Now listen to the six most authentic North American ingredients. Butter. Egg. Wheat. Milk. Vanilla. Cane molasses. Think about that North American list. Of all the possibilities, doesn't it seem strange that vanilla is in the top six? What do you use vanilla for? Especially in combination with eggs, flour, milk, and something called cane molasses. Baked goods. Dessert. And dessert got me thinking about data. The data that YY and Sebastian used suggests that baked goods are the most popular part of the North American diet, the thing North Americans eat more than anything else. But as much as we like our cakes, that kind of didn't seem right. So I asked Maddie Chara, one of the food anthropologists who interviewed YY, why there might be so many recipes for baked goods. She said the websites don't necessarily reflect what we actually cook. I know I don't bake cakes, you know, even once a month um, as much as I enjoy cakes. However, I think that when I do bake a cake, because partially because baking is so precise, I usually tend to use a recipe. And I think also um, that there's a bit of entertainment value in recipes for things like baked goods and um, desserts. So it's maybe not as fun to read about, I think, um, I was thinking of vegan nut loaf, um, which would be a pretty complex um, thing to make and not many people know about it. But probably you're only looking up a recipe for that if you're actually going to make it. Whereas? People enjoy reading or looking at recipes um, for sort of fun celebratory foods like cakes, um, cookies, other desserts even if they're not going to actually make them. So there might be more of those recipes out there, um, and it's not necessarily a reflection of how frequently they're consumed in the diet. And if the websites don't reflect what we eat, then YY's data sets might not be saying what we think they're saying and what we want them to be saying, like that these two cuisines are different, one matches flavors and one contrasts them. The data might not be telling us that, which was a bummer because I liked the idea that East Asian cuisine was doing something different with flavor than North American. But if the proof wasn't in the online pudding recipe, maybe I could find someone who'd tasted the pudding. Luckily, I had a food anthropologist on hand. I think that even if the data is imperfect, there might be some truth there um, based on my ethnographic experience, which was in southern India. And... um, From what I know from reading and observing and talking to people there, there is a high value placed on having lots of different um, contrasting flavors within a meal and even within a dish. Which, in southern India at least, has to do with the influence of the Ayurvedic tradition, where there are six different flavors and... Those present in the dish or the meal creates a a sense of balance. There's a reason YY's point about cuisines was so exciting. It felt right. 
and Matty Chara's on-the-ground research says it might hold water after all. Trying to figure this story out reminded me that the information we collect about people is never neutral. It's always from a perspective, and it doesn't necessarily reflect what people are actually doing, because it doesn't capture everything about their lives. Which is why, if you're into crunching numbers, it can be good to have an anthropologist around. Just talking to people, getting life histories, interviewing them, um, spending a lot of time with a certain cultural community and um, really learning more about their daily practices and what kind of flavors they put together. To help figure out how people might be making the data and using it in their daily lives. To check your bird's eye view. For YY, though, I might be missing the point. The goal of the study wasn't to prove something beyond a doubt. We would need a better understanding of people's actual practices to do that. Yeah, so I think really, I think the important meaning of this research is we can use, we have data, and we can use data sets to study like cuisines and food culture. And I think that's a big uh, kind of uh, milestone that we can pass. So it's not like really, how to say, showing like really strong results. It's more like, oh, maybe this is possible. And why don't you come over and have fun and enjoy looking into this amazing data sets of our food culture. So come on over. We've got the Flavor Network on our website. Like I said, it's kind of beautiful. That story comes to us from producer Alex Chambers. We have links to his latest project, The Age of Humans, at eartheats.org. Next up, we have a recipe from Jackie B. Howard. She used to work here at the radio station. She's an accomplished chef, and she shared a number of great ideas with us. Today's recipe is a warm slaw featuring Brussels sprouts, roasted butternut squash, and spicy bratwurst. The butternut's been cubed, seasoned, and roasted. She's using it for some other dishes besides the slaw. The grilled brats were left over from a cookout and stashed in the freezer till she came up with an idea for them. Because that's how Jackie works. She uses what she has and preps one ingredient to use in several dishes. The butternut has cooled, the brats are thawed, and now she's getting the Brussels sprouts ready. She's cutting them in half and then using the slicer blade on her food processor. Amazing how great those smell, just cutting them in half. Right, right. I am a big fan of cabbage and, you know, some people don't like Brussels sprouts, but I really, really, I think they're so delicious. Just try them. Not like your mom pulled out of the freezer. Right. <laughs> Real Brussels sprouts. Take them, cut them, roast them, saute them, just caramelize them. But roast them with that sweetness to it, you'll never go back. <laughs> I really like them with mustard. Yes, yes. That's what this is going to have a mustard vinaigrette. That's yeah. It's a really great flavor combo. All right. So I'll cut those in half, and now I'll run them through the food processor. We 
we are putting I'm putting together the slaw I've got the Brussels sprouts through the processor and I'm gonna do a uh, mustard vinaigrette you can use any mustard I've done about four tablespoons yeah five I'm gonna now. do five and I'm gonna add vinegar and honey to it for now and then I'm gonna put I'm gonna saute the Brussels sprouts with a little bit of oil and I'm gonna add this to it. I'm gonna taste it once I put some stuff together and make sure it's got the flavor I want to it. I can always add extra seasonings if I think it needs to be a little sweeter, a little tangier, a little, I can always add that as I go. I had the five tablespoons of mustard. We're gonna do about a tablespoon of honey. And I just did about a tablespoon of red wine vinegar. I'm gonna do this to taste as well, and I want it to be slightly on the thicker side because the Brussels sprouts are gonna give off a little bit of liquid when they cook, um, plus I'm adding oil. Pan is hot, and I'm gonna do some olive oil on there. And so that's why I didn't put any olive oil into my dressing because I'm putting it on the pan to saute my Brussels sprouts. If I were gonna do that as a dressing for if we were gonna do the Brussels sprouts cold as a cold salad, I would put the olive oil into my vinaigrette. Mm -hmm. So the Brussels sprouts are going into the pan. I'm gonna throw about a teaspoon of salt. And I'm gonna do cracked black pepper for this. Six to eight cranks. The Brussels sprouts smell delicious. They smell warm. It has that, like it fills your senses. It's not bright like uh, basil. That's gonna smell really bright and fresh and the Brussels sprouts smell warm and toasty. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna saute them up too much because I wanna still keep this fresh and hearty and keep some texture to it. Mm -hmm. You want a little uh, bit of crunch in there. Yes, yes. So this has just been, I don't know, like a minute probably two tops. I'm going to add my dressing, that mustard dressing. I'm going to toss that around. And now that this is getting wet, I don't want to cook it much more because that wet dressing is going to pull out more moisture from my Brussels sprouts. So I'm actually turning the heat off now. And I'm going to add my brats. And I'm gonna add the red onion. I didn't saute the red onion with the Brussels sprouts because I want the red onion to get warm and break down just a little bit, but I wanna keep it kind of fresh and bright and that's what's gonna help it taste more fresh when I eat it later. I'm gonna taste it as it is now before I add my butternut squash. Once I put that butternut squash in, it's soft. I don't wanna mix it much more right. after that. So I'm gonna taste it now. Then I will put in the cherries and the butternut squash, give it a light toss, and then it can be put into containers for the week. So even just being there for like 30 seconds, the brats already have their flavor on the Brussels sprouts as well. Those extra seasonings really complement the mustard and you don't, that mustard is not nearly as tangy now. Jackie decided to add a little bit more vinegar to balance out the sweetness of the butternut and to cut the fattiness of the brats. I'm gonna taste it again. Yeah, that's what I like. I like it tangy. If you taste it and it tasted fine, don't add extra vinegar to it. But I like it that little tangy. So I'm gonna get the, but the butternut squash. About a cup or so into this slaw mix. Stir that around. They're holding their shape pretty good though. They are, they are, which is really nice. And that's, such, that's what's so crucial about letting them cool um, before mm. adding them to this, 
is it does help them retain their shape once you add them. But now I'm adding it to something warm, so it's going to start to break down the more I mix it. The last thing to go into this warm slaw is the fresh pitted sweet cherries. Then it's time to taste. So I've got to get something of everything in yep. every bite. <laughs> the Brussels sprouts are cooked perfectly, like they're just not soggy or anything. They're right. nice and crisp, but they're not raw. It's yeah. just right, yeah. yeah. It's got a really nice crunch to it. Yeah, that's gonna be a satisfying dinner. It's, like I said, it's filling, but light. The last step for Jackie is to package it up into meal-sized containers to enjoy throughout the week. As always, you can find the recipe at eartheats.org. Have you ever tried to craft a honey drop cake with bee larvae? What about a simple mealworm curry? Entomophagy, or the practice of consuming insects for food, has been all over the food media world for years. Often you hear it talked about as a sustainable solution for the world's growing demand for protein. Our next guests have a different approach to the topic. Blue Delaquanti and Soleho are the authors of the young adult graphic novel called Meal. Here's Blue with a summary of the story. The basic plot of Meal is that it follows a young woman named Yarrow who is moved to a new town in the uh, hopes of getting a job at a new restaurant that is getting a lot of buzz for specializing in insect cuisine. And so the book is about her journey to try and get this job while she's making new friends and contacts in her new home. My name is Blue Delaquani. I'm a comics writer and illustrator. I am the co-creator of the graphic novel Meal, as well as the online comic Oh Human Star and a few other things. Blue is the artist and primary author of the story. Soleil Ho is a food writer and the restaurant critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. She was also a co-host of the podcast Racist Sandwich and currently co-hosts the podcast Extra Spicy with Justin Phillips. Soleil played a consulting role for the story as someone with professional restaurant experience. I feel like it was small details that were really important, like how many chairs will fit in a restaurant and like how much yeah. is turnover, kind of practical things. Like what do you call a chef when you're working mm -hmm. with them? That sort of stuff. Yeah. Lots of things that help make the place feel authentic to the experience of running a restaurant and joining like the community of a restaurant's staff in a way that, because Soleil has practical like hands-on knowledge and experience of how that works because of what she's done. Mm -hmm. And I think one of my favorite things that I added on, which is like to toot my own horn a bit, but just there's a scene at the beginning where Yara first Young enters Kashi Katana, where um, Gonzalo brings up, he gets a phone call, right, from mm -hmm. the the food media, essentially, the local alt Weekly, and they ask about the restaurant concept. And so <laughs> the part that we kind of added was just 
the way the reporter asks questions about the restaurant to sort of sensationalize it. And so Mm -hmm. that was a really nice kind of undertone there that set the scene for all of these other things that happened Mm -hmm. in the book. Oh, yeah. And the other thing I should add is that Soleil also contributed an essay to be a bookend for the graphic novel that... I, I, I think is like a super important part because it, you know, she's talking about, she has interviewed people she knows, like friends and contacts in the restaurant industry and people who practice entomophagy and, and do it in their, their restaurants. And I felt like that was really important because it helps establish that even though the narrative of Neil is fictional, a lot of these concepts are grounded in something real and something that people are experiencing and starting to share more in mainstream American culture. It helps anchor these fun fictional details in something that is real and that people have experience in. And Soleil, was there something in particular that excited you about the project? At the time, I think even currently, I'm so excited about food comics and just the new wave of food comics ever since Cooking Papa. There's just so much out there that renders food and drink in really interesting, challenging ways. And it's helped expand my idea of food writing. And so having a chance to work on something like that was so cool. I couldn't pass it up. It's a genre of comics that has really grown and matured a lot in the last 10 years, especially. There's so many amazing ways that cartoonists have figured out how to render food and in art and and, in comics and also be able to communicate recipes and the history of of food. It's really a great way to communicate a lot of unusual or esoteric or just like really interesting food concepts. And when you get to edible insects, making them look, I feel like illustration makes it look cuter than photography for a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Do either of you have entomophagy in your own food traditions? In Vietnam, because my family's Vietnamese, there are some folks who make pho with sea worms in them. Uh, so it, they, they incorporate dried sea worms into the broth to mm-hmm. add like a certain element, a certain like je ne sais quoi to, to pho. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. I'm Italian-American, and the only thing that came to mind is the... Uh, there's a there's an insect called cochineal that for a long time was a red dye um, that a food safe red dye that you could find in a whole bunch of things and for the most part it's been phased out for artificial red dye in food. I think one of the only exceptions is an Italian liqueur called Campari. Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of Italian wise that comes to mind for me. Well, there is the maggot cheese blue. Oh, I forgot about the maggot cheese. Do tell, do tell. <laughs> That's your people. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this island. I, I, I can't remember the name of the island, but there is a place in Italy where they have traditionally eaten a type of cheese called kasu marzu, and it is allowed to be inoculated or, I guess, used as an incubator, essentially, for cheese wasp larvae. And so when the larvae hatch, they consume the cheese, and, you know, digest it. And so people, it becomes this really interesting, creamy, musky flavor. And people just eat it with bread and um, delicious wine. And yeah, it's, they eat, they eat the cheese like larva and all. 
do the larvae, are they still alive in the cheese or at some point do they not make it? Oh, yeah, they're, they're still alive. Okay. <laughs> so if we could talk a little bit more about the topic of entomophagy. So it's become a pretty hot topic in the food world, especially in thinking about it as a solution for meeting the protein needs and in a more environmentally sound manner in the future. But you make the point in the story and, and in Soleil's essay, too, at the end about how eating insects isn't some new fad or a solution for the future, but something that's a part of many cultures, cuisines, and has been. Could you talk a little bit more about that? What is interesting to me is always the, especially in food media, because that's my world, the temptation to talk about the future of food and just think like with wide-eyed kind of excitement about what's coming and what food might look like as we rapidly approach our Star Trek-ish future, especially in the Bay Area, there's a lot of ideas that fly around. One thing that I found really interesting about that, though, is that a lot of entrepreneurs who are jumping on the edible insect bandwagon in the past, oh gosh, six years are of Western origin. And by that, I mean people from the first world-ish developed countries, people in from Europe or from North America. And that doesn't include Mexico, because I think a lot of people who are north of the border are the ones who are better situated to start these tech-ish insect startups. There's a lot of rhetoric about what insects can do for you, for your nutrition, for your lifestyle, and not a lot of that same slow food language that we've mm. also been really excited about in the Bay Area and in the U.S. and across the world about, you know, thinking about the origin of your food, thinking about whole foods. That doesn't really apply to insects for some reason, right? <laughs> um, because so much thought is being put into the marketing of them rather than sourcing, for instance, or just their place in like a well-balanced diet rather than just a snack food. Mm-hmm. It's just so complicated and so rich. And that's what got me really excited about it. And there's also kind of this vague apocalyptic narrative included in it. More than once I heard people saying, oh, well, we'll all be eating this someday. Like yeah. the idea that you know, when the bottom falls out of our current food way, that insects will be the perhaps not desired but necessary replacement. The experience of entomophagy and edible insects is so diverse and varied because most people in the world eat them. And that means they're just a huge multiplicity of, of just ways that people go about that. And so in this town called Kushihara in Japan, they raise wasps in boxes in their backyard. It's mainly older folks. And they just kind of, they capture a tiny, maybe baseball-sized nest in the spring and over the summer and fall, they feed them just chicken, like raw chicken, just throw it into the box (laughs) for the larvae to eat. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting. And the adults eat like sugar water, like honey water and bring meat to the larva. And so it's a kind of funny thing when you think about people trying to sell insects as a protein replacement, because they are just feeding them like (laughs) the protein (laughs) that you ostensibly would be replacing with them. And so it's less about that shift in lifestyle and more just about we are cultivating these things because we enjoy the flavor, mm-hmm. because we like them. And that's mm-hmm. so different from what we normally hear. You have to make the nest big because there's a contest at the beginning of November every year to see who has made the biggest hornet's nest or wasp nest. And so you got to make them big. You got you to make them swole. 
<laughs> Soleil was describing this to me about like who's like going to get the biggest hive. They ranged from like one kilo to seven. They're like gargantuan looking. They're just really, really big. And yeah, yeah. just talk about all of these like, you know, older retirees who would be winning and everyone else grumbling is like, oh, well, they can stay home all day and feed them chicken and squid. It's it just feels like totally normal in a very charming small town way. And I really love how completely outside of a, say, North American experience, but still extremely relatable. I, yeah. I love that story. Those sorts of narratives are what are competing against the future narrative. So, Leah, I wanted to ask you if there are a lot of restaurants in the Bay Area that are offering dishes made with mealworms, with ants and grasshoppers or tarantula. And do you expect to be sampling those dishes and, and reviewing those restaurants? Oh, man. I actually just met one of the founders of Tiny Farms, which is a cricket and mealworm company out in Oakland. And he said that there weren't too many out here, but that he was willing to come with me to sample whatever we could. So yeah, I would be really excited to try restaurants, insects in the Bay Area, but I haven't yet. Okay. Do you also expect to be taking on the topic of, of cultural appropriation in the restaurant world in, in this new position? Maybe. It's, it's sort of a thing that will be more implicit than explicit, just because uh -huh. I think the conversations about cultural appropriation are so damaged. I don't think people really understand how to talk about it. And so I think going about it in a more subtle way would probably make more sense. <laughs> yeah. You know, so what do you mean by their, the conversations are so damaged? I mean, some people haven't even had the conversations yet. So Right. Oh, I mean, that's the thing, right? I think there's a knee-jerk reaction where culture appropriation means you can't eat food that doesn't belong to your culture. I think that has just triggered so quickly that reaction that I don't know if using that phrase makes sense anymore because I think people bring a lot of baggage to that conversation. Yeah. When really what you should be talking about is the racial wealth gap and about, you know, unequal business opportunities and cultural ownership and um, intellectual property rights and that sort of thing. There are so much more deep ways to be having the conversation, whereas cultural appropriation is just kind of it's a flashpoint. And so, you know, I think especially with me, I think there are people who have encountered my work who haven't really read it. <laughs> they think that I'm just going to be you know, marking down all of the white-owned taco places. But it, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, and I'm hoping to, you know, reintroduce some level of nuance and complication. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with me today. <laughs> yeah, our, our pleasure. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Blue Delacuante and Solejo are the authors of Meal, published by Iron Circus Comics. We have links to their work and a list of some of their favorite food comics on our website at eartheats.org. I have to say, I wasn't that thrilled about entomophagy when I first picked up the book, but by the end, I was genuinely wishing I could try some of the dishes described in the story. They sounded so appealing. I hope you have a chance to check out the book.
And before we go, we have one more fun recipe for you today. Susan Mentert of the Indiana Home Cooks podcast makes a caramel corn using a paper grocery bag and the microwave oven. You start with popped popcorn in a bag, and then you make the caramel sauce. Here's Susan and her daughter, Christine. So uh, what we have in here is a cup of brown sugar. We've got a half cup of butter, unsalted butter, um, a quarter cup of corn syrup, and a half teaspoon of salt. So that's all we need for now. We've also uh, measured out a half teaspoon of baking soda and put it aside because we will add it um, a little later. We're going to start though this mixture in the microwave oven and we're going to give it two minutes to start now. Okay. So our mixture has cooked for two minutes. Our butter is melted and bubbly, and we're going to give this a stir. And by the way, I, um, I just use a, a large measuring cup. I have a four-cup measuring cup. Pyrex. Pyrex measuring cup, and um, this is just the perfect size for this recipe. Uh, and then I have a trivet standing by here, too, because I don't like to put that hot... Pyrex measuring cup on my counter so it's on the trivet. Now we've got that stirred so this is going to go in for two more minutes and then the very last thing will be the baking soda. Yeah we've got about one more minute in the microwave for our caramel and uh, yeah it has bubbled up almost to the top of this four cup measuring cup so this is just the right size and uh, when it's done, we'll pull it out and we'll add our um, soda and give it a final stir. Wow, yeah, that, that cup is the exact right mm -hmm. size. If you've got one a little bigger, it wouldn't hurt to, yeah. to use that. All right, it's all done, and we will carefully bring it out. So we're going to put on our soda, give it one more stir, and it's going to foam up. Just incorporate that thoroughly, Christine, scrape it around the sides there, and then give it a real good mix in. Looks lovely. So now we're going to come back over here to where our, our uh, popcorn is in the bag. And um, could you hold that? Yep. All right. And we are going to pour the caramel right onto the corn in the bag, so stand clear to make sure we get as much of it as we can on the corn. There we have it. Okay, put that aside. <clears throat> and now we're going to just fold This part is pretty noisy, so what we do at this point is we fold and seal the bag closed. So fold it down about three times and crease it so that it stays securely closed. And then just hold it firmly and you shake the bag vigorously. You shake it from side to side, turn it over, shake it some more. You're trying to distribute the caramel throughout the popped corn. So after about 30 seconds of vigorous shaking, 
we make sure the bag is tightly sealed and then we put it in the microwave oven. And it's a series of four cooking segments, each followed by more shaking until Alright, and then I just take a little my offset spatula or just any kind of a spatula and you can spread it out and let it cool. And as soon as it's cool enough to eat, <laughs> you can start eating it. Yep. So, so there it is. It's still mm. quite warm. You can feel the heat coming off of it. But um, in just a few minutes, it's going to be cooled and crispy and it's just got a really lovely coating on it and it's delicious. Susan Mintert is host of the Indiana Home Cooks podcast. The complete recipe for caramel corn in a bag is at indianahomecooks.com and at eartheats.org. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Get the freshest food news each week. Subscribe to the Earth Eats Digest. It's a weekly note packed with food stories and recipes right in your inbox. Go to eartheats.org to sign up. Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Spencer Bowman, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Yaley Kamara, Alex Chambers, Maddie Chura, Lee Bush, YY On, Solejo, Blue Delaquanti, Jackie B. Howard, Susan Mintert, and her daughter Christine. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.